Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. Here you are. BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. The first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. I actually had got up early in the morning that I found out, and I was kind of just like scrolling through Facebook and social media, and I started seeing posts where people had tagged Blaine. And they're like, oh my God, I can't believe this. What did this have to happen? What's going on? I thought, what's happening? I don't, I don't understand what's happening. And I remember oh just thinking to myself, there's no way, there's no way this could be a mistake. You go through those quick stages of denial, you know, where you're just like, there's no way, this is not true, this is not real. It was so gut-wrenching. I just don't even have words. I would say it very much became more clear to me that you literally cannot take any day on this earth for granted. And you cannot take any time that you have with family and people that you care about, whether that's your friends or your coworkers or whoever it may be, you can't take that time for granted. And that you literally do have to make the time you have with people count and matter. Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vianick. I'm sitting here with Alexis Linkletter. And I actually started off with our Patreon intro because... We do so many different shows that it's really hard to keep them straight when we're trying to start one. (laughs) Sure is, but uh, we're here for it. We love bringing you the content you deserve. We love bringing you incredible, compelling content. So, you know, Jack, that's a mistake I'm willing to overlook. It is. Uh, Do we have any housekeeping that we need to do before we start today's episode? Other than if you are craving more first degree content, please join our Patreon. We have a bonus episode every single week for you over there, as well as video content, other bonus content, exclusive access to things, lots of stuff going on over there. Yeah, we have... I think over 50 full-length episodes now. If you are out of first-degree traditional feed content to binge on, we've got that for you. Really compelling cases. Cases that came from listeners. Cases that need more attention. Yeah, we encourage you to go over there. We'd love to uh, have you join us. But uh, I think that that's enough of that. So let's turn on the lights. And turn up your anxiety. Because this could be you. So 
So if you're a true crime fan, you'll probably be well familiar with the three indicators of suspicion. Motive, means, and opportunity. These elements are the foundation of any homicide investigation, but the other key factors involved in building a case is, of course, hard evidence. We all know that while prosecutors don't have to prove motive in court, it makes a case all the more compelling if they can, especially if the evidence they have is just circumstantial. But what happens if multiple people are involved in a senseless murder, and one or more of these players are the weak link in the investigative chain? If one person has the means and opportunity, and the other has the motive, does this compromise the integrity in the cases against each of them? And does it make it easier for the accused to evade justice? So we begin today's case on September 1st of 2012. The German manufacturer of the morning sickness drug thalidomide publicly apologized for the first time in 50 years to people who had been born with birth defects after their mothers took the drug while pregnant when it was popular in the 1950s. That is absolutely terrifying. And it was also the 27th anniversary of the discovery of the wreck of the Titanic, which we all know about, especially from recent events. And on a lighter note, on the pop music charts, enjoying her second week at number one with We Are Never Getting Back Together was none other than Queen Taylor Swift herself. And at the box office that week, moviegoers were turning out to see supernatural horror flick The Possession, as well as the crime drama Lawless, starring Tom Hardy and Jessica Chastain. And the setting for today's story is Warrensburg, Missouri. Situated in west-central Missouri in Johnson County, the small city of around 20,000 people is located about 58 miles southeast of Kansas City. Warrensburg is named after blacksmith Martin Warren, who in 1833 arrived and settled along the Osage Indian Trail. I'm sure I butchered that. I'm sorry. Thereafter, seeing the town expand following the arrival of the railroad during the mid-1860s. Throughout the 19th and early 20th centuries, Warrensburg became known as the mule capital of Missouri, thanks to local mules taking out coveted prizes at the Missouri State Fair and St. Louis World's Fair. Mule capital. What an honor. Mm. But Warrensburg is probably best known for being a college town, home to the University of Central Missouri, which plays a big role in our story today. Our first degree for today's case is named Deidre, and Deidre grew up in a rural area of Missouri where her family got to know and became close with another family called the Whitworths. In 1993, the Whitworths had moved from Texas to a farm near the small town of Garden City, about 40 miles outside of Warrensburg. And the Whitworths had four kids, including a son named William, who instead went by his middle name, which was Blaine. Deidre's brother and Blaine became close friends in kindergarten, so the two families got to know each other really well. And as the kids spent more and more time together, the families became super close, being involved in so many of the same activities and social groups. We started at the Sherwood School District, which is where Blaine went to grade school, and where my brother and I went to grade school there in Creighton, Missouri. I met him through my brother's. They played sports together. They were in Cub Scouts together and then Boy Scouts together. And our families just really meshed together through all of that because they were such close friends. There was a very small group of kids that were always together. And so whether my brother was at Blaine's house or Blaine was at my parents' house, you know, those kids kind of circulated. And so I basically grew up knowing Blaine as kind of another obnoxious younger brother who, you know, at times could drive you wild, but he was such a special human and him and my brother were just so close. Blaine was a fun-loving, mischievous, yet civic-minded guy with a larger-than-life spirit and would do anything for anyone. 
Among his many amazing attributes and achievements, he was most well known for his life motto of go big or go home. I love that. Along with working as a hay hauler on the family farm, Blaine was obsessed with sports and he became an Eagle Scout and was active in the youth group for his local church. He was infectious. He was vibrant. He was energetic. He had ADHD and I loved him for it. And we're looking at pictures of Blaine right now. First of all, he's a ginger. He's a gingy. Yeah. And he's doing all these sports. I mean, he's in his football portrait. He looks like he also is an MMA fighter. Yeah. Ambitious guy. No doubt. He's really cute. He has like the best smile ever. Stocky. Like his, his stature reminds me of Jared's a little bit. So it feels close. Totally. And there's a picture of him with his brothers and his brother has like the same color beard as his hair is. So obviously related. So just super, looks like a super fun-loving, sporty guy. Yeah. So after graduating from Sherwood High School in 2005, Blaine attended the University of Central Missouri and he threw himself into campus life when he was there. And he became an admissions ambassador, working with new students and of course, getting involved in more intramural sports. In 2009, he graduated with a bachelor's degree in safety management and ready to take on the world, Blaine did a summer internship at the BP oil rig, Deepwater Horizon, before working as a safety advisor on rigs in the Gulf of Mexico and Singapore. And after a couple of years, he returned home with even bigger dreams for his entrepreneurial future. Warrensburg is such a small campus. They have this party street called Holden Street, and that's where all the bars are. He actually went to school there at CMSU. He went out on some oil rigs and had done safety on them for a little while, saved a bunch of money, and his dream was to come back to Warrensburg and to be able to purchase a bar. And so he'd come back, and he'd open up the first bar, and then he'd actually purchase the second. And I believe that I did get to go on at least one time to see him at one of the bars, and it was so neat to kind of see him as the owner. The first Warrensburg bar that Blaine purchased was named Bodie's. He worked really hard refurbishing the premises, and he reopened the bar as Bodie's 2.0 two months later, which is clever, especially if this was like a beloved watering hole before. Yeah. And the second bar he purchased in February of 2012 was a bar that he would go on to name Molly's, which was after his grandmother. So I just got to say, this is some ambition for a guy to do this all by 25, especially after like going to work on oil rigs like this guy's a jack-of-all-trades type, and also super sweet. Yeah. I mean, I was literally just chasing boys around when I was 25 years old and getting drunk. So he was far beyond anything that I was doing with my life. So very, very impressive. And it was really cute that he named his bar after his grandma. Like, so sweet. Absolutely. So all the college kids in this town loved going to Blaine's bars, and he kind of became a beloved local fixture. He was this businessman that everyone loved. He was an amazing boss to his staff. And all the staff wore shirts with go big or go home, his sort of mantra to live by on the back of their shirts. And Blaine was also very much a hands-on kind of guy when it came to his employees, his bar, and he just had a huge heart. He was a permanent fixture at work where he could always be found giving a kind and empathetic ear to his college-aged customers. He was also known to text students and check in on their mental health if they weren't doing too well, ask how a big test went, or even give them a good-natured figurative kick in the ass if they knew that they were socializing when they should be studying. He's just such a very welcoming, wholesome person. Just, hey, how are you? Let me get you some drinks. How have you been? How's life? Just very thoughtful, such an incredible spirit to be around. And 
I think that was probably the draw for a lot of the young people at the college to come in as well as they were able to kind of make that relationship like I did over the years in a very short amount of time and it just being such a welcoming family environment. Blaine was such a pivotal point of so many college students at UCM. He would literally text message people like, hey, did you get your chemistry paper done? If you didn't, I don't want to see you here tonight. You know, if someone came in and they're having a bad day, like, hey, what's going on? Talk to me. What's the deal? And he was so fixated on making sure that the kids, that the college had a great time in his bar, but they also got their education because he did. He understood how important that was. It was important for him to take the steps to do what he did to save the money to make his dream come true. And he wanted other people to have the same, you know, outlook. Blaine's unlimited kindness, generosity of spirit, and drive to make a difference meant that he didn't think twice about helping those who were less fortunate than he was. It was no surprise to anyone when he and his family took in a 28-year-old homeless man. And not only did Blaine want to give this complete stranger a home, a roof over their heads, but he also helped to get him his GED as well. The story I wanted to share that really kind of just shows the human that Blaine was at such a young age is that there was a homeless man that was living behind one of his bars. And he had noticed this and it really bothered him. And so he actually took this person, this human being, and let this person live with him at his house, like brought him in, didn't know this person whatsoever. And between him and his mom, they took him to do GED classes, got him everything he needed to basically get his high school diploma. So he'd go out and get a job and become successful. And he's now a productive member of society. So there was no question that Blaine's light burned really, really bright. And this was evident in how well all of his bars were doing. He knew his success was due to the support of his staff, who were more like close friends than employees, including his doorman at Molly's, Reggie, who was from Kansas City and started working for Blaine in May of 2012. Right. And let's face it. So if anyone was living the dream, it was Blaine. He was seeing success at such a young age. He had family and friends who loved him. Like what? else is there. But then, on the morning of September 2nd, 2012, shocking news broke across Warrensburg and the UCM campus, news that devastated the local community. And this news was that the night before, Blaine had been killed. And it wasn't an accident, it was a homicide. And Deidre remembers the moment that she found out the news. I actually had got up early in the morning that I found out and I was kind of just like scrolling through Facebook and social media. And I started seeing posts where people had tagged Blaine. And they're like, oh, my God, I can't believe this. What did this have to happen? What's going on? Just on and on and on about, you know, I'll miss you. And just remembrance posts. I thought, there's no way. What's happening? I don't, I don't understand what's happening. And so I actually went over to news stations and started clicking through news stations. And that's when I saw that there had been a murder in Warrensburg and that there was a bar owner that was murdered. And I was actually living with my best friend at the time. And I remember screaming and this was probably like six o'clock in the morning. And I remember she came running out of her bedroom. She's like, what's wrong? And I'm like, Blaine's dead. She's like, what do you mean Blaine's dead? And I said, this is, he was murdered. And I remember just thinking to myself, there's no way, there's no way this is to be a mistake. You go through those quick stages of denial, you know, where you're just like, there's no way this is not true. This is not real. And then I think I remember reaching out to my mom. My mom's like, I don't know what you're talking about. And then, you know, I don't remember anything really past that. Because, again, my mom and Diane, which is Blaine's mom, were really close. And so 
I suspected my mom would know about this before anything, and she didn't. It was so gut-wrenching. I just don't even have words. Given the closeness of Deidre to Blaine's family, she was understandably inconsolable. But what came along with a sickening emotional gut punch were the questions that followed. How had Blaine died? Who killed him? And why would someone do this? So to find out what happened, you know the drill. We got to go back. Deidre had just heard about the sudden and incomprehensible murder of her good friend and local bar owner, Blaine Whitworth. As local law enforcement looked into how events unfolded, they learned that the night before, Blaine had gone to Molly's bar at around 7 p.m. And at 8 p.m., like he did so many times before, Blaine went home to shower and change before returning to do another shift that night. Right. And around 9.30 p.m., as Blaine stood in his driveway, he was shot three times in the back with hollow-point bullets, and he was killed instantly. By 10 p.m., the staff at Molly started to get worried. They were wondering where Blaine was. He was due back. And when they tried to reach him, he wasn't answering his phone. Blaine lay lifeless in his driveway next to his pickup truck, with police arriving on the scene soon after receiving a call reporting shots fired. They could immediately rule on the possibility that this was a robbery gone wrong because a cash register drawer and bank bag, both full of money and Blaine's laptop, were found in the truck. They also found a shell casing at the scene. So naturally, the question on everyone's minds was this. Who would have the motive to do this, especially to someone as beloved as Blaine? I really thought there's nobody in the world that the local police departments are ever going to solve this. They're awful. They're incompetent. There's no way this is going to happen. And so I remember talking to my mom, asking if she heard anything from Diane. And Diane's like, they have no idea. They have no suspects in mind. They don't really know what's going on. At the beginning of the next week is when we finally heard that they had Johnson County SWAT team on it. And they were you know, trying to incorporate them to go out into the community and see who potentially Blaine had upset, if he had any enemies, things like that. And then I would say within at the end of the week, we kind of understood that they believed they had a suspect, and by that next weekend, they finally had him in custody. At least the trigger man. In a twist that shocked absolutely everyone, in the days following Blaine's murder, investigators learned that the gunman was Blaine's doorman and good friend Reggie, who it turned out had been fired from Molly's just a week before. I later learned through the news, as it finally came out, that the perpetrator, the trigger man, had actually confessed to his girlfriend that he had done this and she went to the police and told the police hey my baby daddy just told me this happened I know this person as well I'm not okay with it and so that's how he was basically apprehended and then it kind of just started to fall into place When I was growing up, I took French in high school, but I could never get the language to stick. I wanted to be fluent so bad, but it never happened. I just couldn't focus and I couldn't practice enough and it didn't work. But thankfully, there's Rosetta Stone, which is the most trusted language learning program and it's available on desktop or it can be used as an app on your phone or tablet. Rosetta Stone is different. It immerses you in so many ways. And with its intuitive process, you can pick up any language naturally, first with words, then phrases, and then sentences. And before you know it, boom, conversations. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. 
Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the first degree listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash first. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash first today. Okay, so it comes as no surprise that I have absolutely no idea how to cook. I don't want to learn how to cook. It's not really my thing. But when I tried Factor meals, it was a freaking game changer. So Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Yeah, two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. So the first time I tried Factor meals, I was actually blown away because I'm like, that's it. That That's all it is. Two minutes and the meals are so delicious. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every single week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, ooh, fancy, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Like I said, they're so easy to prepare. I love them. So head to factormeals.com slash degree50 and use code degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code degree50 at factorymeals.com slash degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. It's almost summer and the best and most sustainable way to shop for a new season is on therealreal.com. The Real Real is the largest and most trusted source for authenticated luxury resale. It's the only place you'll find brands like Hermes, Cartier, Prada, Dior, Stodd, Zimmerman, Jacquemus, and more for up to 90% off retail. 10,000 plus new arrivals land every single day from hundreds of brands you love, all authenticated by a team of in-house experts. Whether it's that perfect wedding guest look, a new summer sandal, an updated beach tote, resort wear for your summer vacation, you're bound to find exactly what you're looking for, plus deals you won't get anywhere else on therealreal.com. Visit therealreal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply. When Blaine's former doorman Reggie was taken in for questioning, he ultimately confessed to killing Blaine, but he said he'd been hired as part of a hit. During his confession, He admitted that on the night in question, sometime before 9.30 p.m., Reggie parked down the street from Blaine's house. Then, after Blaine pulled into the driveway, Reggie got out of his car, walked up behind Blaine, and shot him three times in the back with a 40 caliber Smith & Wesson handgun before fleeing the scene. And during the first part of Reggie's police interview, he wouldn't answer questions, but instead he kept asking questions trying to get more information about what the police already knew. And eventually, Reggie agreed to lead investigators to the murder weapon, which he'd buried in a parking lot about half an hour out of Warrensburg. From what I remember from the night of what happened was that the shooter was actually on the clock or at the bar and Blaine went home to shower and clean up and come back a little bit later like he always did. And he slipped out, killed Blaine, and then came back and grieved with everybody else whenever he found out he was dead. So not only did Reggie kill his friend and former boss, but like a true snake in the fucking grass, he then pretended to mourn Blaine's death in the hours and days that followed. That's the most fucked up part is that people said, I remember there being comments of people who knew Blaine and who were close to everybody in the whole situation saying, 
he came back to the bars. I cried on his shoulder. We were bawling because this incredible human was gone. And he acted like he was sad. He was a part of this. But he fucking killed him. Reggie told police that the guy who hired him to kill Blaine was Reggie's 23-year-old roommate, Ziad Abid. Like Reggie, Ziad was also said to be a friend of Blaine's. The trigger man spilled his guts, basically told everything. They had all the information that they needed. So that person was also arrested. And so he was taken into custody as well. And he obviously refused to talk. He wasn't interested in talking whatsoever. And so that was kind of the initial way that I knew that at least both of them had been arrested for the crime and had those charges put against them at that time. So who was Ziad and how did Blaine know him? Ziad Tariq Abid, who hailed from the city of Jeddah in Saudi Arabia, was a student at UCM going into his senior year studying aviation. So we're looking at a picture of him right now. And I got to say, handsome man. Yeah. Smug fucking mugshot. I mean, yeah, he looks like he's like <clears throat> arrogance Fuck is you oozing out of him. And like, yeah. I don't know why it looks like that, but he looks completely unmoved. He looks so apathetic. He looks unflappable in this situation, which he shouldn't be because uh, he's in big trouble. Yeah. But, you know, there's something about him. I'm like, this confidence and calm that he's exuding makes me very nervous. Oh, my God. Yeah. I don't remember why he was so popular on the smaller college campus, but he was. He had actually came to Missouri, to Warrensburg specifically, because they do have an incredible pilot program. Like, I know tons of people that have went there to get their pilot's degrees and to do their flying, all of that stuff. And so that's one reason why he actually came here. They were all friends. So Blaine was actually friends with the Trigger Man and the Money Man. The Money Man was actually a part of that little family. Like, there was a lot of people that were really friends with him because... That was the other crazy thing about this is that most of the people that were devastated about losing Blaine knew the money man and the trigger man. Like everybody was friends. They knew who they were. They were on a first name basis. It wasn't like a foreign person. It was like, oh my God, I know exactly who that is. How in the world could this happen? Reggie told police that Ziad had criminal associates in Kansas who wanted to buy Blaine's bars. The reasons these guys wanted to buy the bars are a little bit hazy, but Reggie claimed Ziad had spoken to Blaine about selling the bars, but Blaine didn't believe Ziad had the money and refused. Reggie told police that Ziad then pressured him into seriously injuring or killing Blaine in retaliation by staging it as a burglary gone wrong. So Reggie then stated that he was scared that if he didn't follow the orders, his family would be killed. And at one point, he even claimed that his gang of individuals were the ones to give him the gun that he would use to commit the murder of Blaine. But later in the interview, Reggie then stated that he had supplied the gun and was at the murder scene waiting for the real gunman to show. So this doesn't really make a lot of sense at all. And then he added that when this mysterious other man didn't show up, he committed the murder himself. So he told a few different stories. Basically, what we had heard is that he had been hired to kill Blaine by somebody else because that person wanted to purchase his bars and he was unwilling to give them up. I had also heard another, I think it was more so of a rumor that this other person had actually wanted to run drugs through his bars because they were so successful and there were so many people in them. And Blaine was like, absolutely not. I'm not going to have any part of that. But I never heard any more concrete information. There was definitely nothing in any type of news article that I ever you know, devoured and read or heard from Diane and Barry saying that that was part of it, that the money behind the hit 
was trying to run drugs. I, I never heard any substantiation of that. So like many people in this community, Deirdre had no idea about anyone wanting to buy Blaine's businesses out from under him. It was something that we definitely learned after the fact. There was nothing that we ever thought that he would ever sell them. I mean, to be quite frank with you, I figured he would be the, <laughs> that old guy with, you know, he ended up getting an ear piercing later in life and he was still at the bar trying to pull off like he was a cool kid in his 40s. On September 5th, Reggie was charged with first-degree murder and armed criminal action and held on a million-dollar bond. Four days later, Ziad was also charged, with the judge initially ruling that he be held without bail on the basis that he was a big flight risk. Meanwhile, hundreds of people from the Warrensburg and UCM communities attended a candlelight vigil in front of Molly's to mourn Blaine's loss and share in their overwhelming grief in a communal atmosphere. Countless people spoke publicly about how Blaine had touched their lives, moved them, and the kind of impact he'd made. At Ziad and Reggie's arraignment the following month, both men pleaded not guilty, and a change of venue for their trials was requested and granted. A month later in November, the judge changed her mind about detaining Ziad and set his bond at $2 million, in addition to having him forfeit his documents, including his passport. There was then a changeover in the judge who was involved initially due to their retirement, so nothing that can be helped there, right? But thankfully, the incoming judge was on the same page about the judge previous to them. And they wanted to keep Ziad detained as well, and they wanted to keep him in the country because they wanted him to face charges. And with both men behind bars, at least for now, everyone thought it would only be a matter of time before justice would be served. And in January of 2013, Blaine's parents filed a wrongful death suit against the two accused men, which was in addition to the criminal charges that they were facing. Three months later, the Saudi government posted Ziad's $2 million bond and wired it to the county clerk. And if you're thinking it sounds weird for a government to go to such lengths to bond out a citizen in another country, hold that thought, because we're going to get there. It's not as odd as you might think. But the case became steeped in further controversy when the new judge, supported by the state attorney general, refused to release Ziad due to the bond not being paid by a licensed bond agent. And as Ziad's visa had since been revoked, given that he could no longer meet the conditions by attending class, there was also the concern that he could be deported before trial if he was free. So basically, the judge and prosecutors wanted Ziad detained so a case could be built while keeping him in the country, and the fact that the judge refused him bail was massive. So the problem was, because Ziad was charged with first-degree murder and not capital murder, under Missouri law, he technically couldn't be refused bail. So this is obviously a statewide provision. So in May of 2013, Ziad's attorneys petitioned the Missouri Court of Appeals, asking for the judge to be removed from the case arguing that their decision was unconstitutional, and they essentially blamed racism for this decision. They were adamant that the federal government wouldn't allow Ziad to be deported while he was ever a suspect in a criminal case. And the following month, the court ruled the judge would remain on the case, and for a second time, he again refused to release Ziad on bail. However, under law, he eventually had to change his decision. Judge Wagner refused to give him bail. I think that actually made national news because in the state of Missouri, a defendant has to be given bail regardless of what it is. They have to have it. You can't deny them. And he denied and denied and denied. There was motion for continuances. And I remember just like holding on to hope that somehow, some way they would be able to find some type of evidence to hold him and keep him here. And at the end of the day, Judge Wagner ended up having to give them bail. 
And I remember being gutted that the judge ended up finally giving in because he knew that he was going against the law. But he held out, I want to say it was like for two weeks. And I remember thinking to myself, thank you for staying your ground, knowing that this SOB had something to do with this and you wanted them to find some type of evidence and giving him at least a little bit of time to hold this guy here to try to make sure that this happened. So in terms of motive, prosecutors never officially released information about why Ziad was allegedly involved or suspected of being involved in this case. As for Reggie, it seemed like money was the sole motivator, which Deirdre and everyone finds truly disgusting, including us, considering he was apparently one of Blaine's good friends. It makes me fucking sick because I literally think he was motivated by money. I think that the money man got in his head and say it was $100,000. If you go do this hit, keep your mouth shut. I'll give you the money. I will swoop in and buy these bars and everything will be copacetic. I truly think that's what it was. I think that he saw these dollar signs. I think that he was a simple person. I think he was a simple man. I think that he thought this was gonna set him up for life and give him, you know, $100,000 or $10,000 or whatever stupid amount of money that it was. And I think he thought that it was gonna set him off to be in a better situation. And I think instead of looking at Blaine for the incredible human that he was and for the person that gave him a job and would have given him the shirt off of his back, literally. He looked at this quick cash out and said, yeah, let's do it. But in the coming months, things took an unexpected turn. The next thing everybody knew, Reggie recanted his confession, refusing to answer any questions for a deposition. Ziad's attorneys had alleged all along that Reggie had been coerced into confessing by local law enforcement and that there was no other evidence linking Ziad to Blaine's murder, pointing to the police insistence throughout Reggie's interview that Ziad was fake. And real quick, I want to comment on that. They might not have known at this point that Ziad existed. They could have thought that Reggie was making up a money man to explain why he would have done this. So I don't think that's valid at all. I think it's just, okay, they didn't have the information yet, especially if Reggie came in and essentially confessed. Yeah, sure. You're trying to absolve yourself of guilt for murdering a guy who was really good to you, right? Either way, Deirdre thinks Ziad's family threatened Reggie into confessing in the first place, which further complicates all of this. Both of them were in custody, but at some point in that time, the trigger man recanted what he said. Judge Wagner stepped up and All of a sudden, Reggie recants what he says and says, nope, I don't remember any of that. I'm not going to say it. I heard that the money guy's family got to him and said, we will go and kill your family if, if you don't recant, if you don't keep your mouth shut. If you don't do this, we'll kill your family. And that's basically the rumors that I was told. And that's the reason why he immediately recanted and took everything back and said, he is the only one single-handedly that decided to kill Blaine. But then you look at it and say, well, then what was your motivation? Like, why the hell did you do it? With this key evidence now gone and the prosecution star witness no longer cooperating, there was no case against Ziad. In late of July of 2013, the charges against him were dropped. But then the charges were immediately reinstated and Ziad was re-indicted. We know, we know there's lots of whiplash in this case. And if you're confused and frustrated and trying to wonder why it's so hard to hold someone accountable for murder, well, just imagine how Blaine's family and friends felt as this was going on in real time. So then 
Less than a week later, in early August, charges were again dropped and Ziad was released from jail. And despite everyone's best efforts within the confines of the law to keep him behind bars, they were unable to do so. So along with Reggie recanting his confession, his conflicting accounts and beyond, all of this significantly weakened any prosecution case against Ziad. I don't know if it was Missouri AG or somebody else. Somebody else stepped up and tried to put charges against the money man, put him back in jail. But because the trigger person wouldn't go ahead and either give a deposition, agree to tell, you know, what actually happened again, then there was really nothing that they could do to try to keep the money man in jail. And so they ended up having to release him. I don't know if it was the prosecuting attorney in Warrensburg that lost his nerve. But he ended up dropping the charges against the money man and saying, oh, you know, we can't do anything because the trigger person recanted. And so we have nothing. We're not even going to continue to charge. Ziad was handed straight to U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement agents and then released that same day under the conditions of a voluntary departure order. Three weeks later, he voluntarily left the U.S. and flew back to Saudi Arabia on a private jet, no less, leaving Kansas City and going via Washington, D.C. And in a move that really took some balls by somebody who was formally accused of murder, during that time, Ziad was waiting for the U.S. immigration paperwork to be processed so he could return to the country in the future if he wanted. And as part of the process, he even voluntarily sat in a polygraph administered by a former FBI agent. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. So remember how we mentioned the Saudi government posted Ziad's bond. If you get in trouble in another country, there's generally a certain level of consular assistance provided, right? Like we see this in the big cases involving North Korea or Russia, hypothetically. Our government will step in if you're unjustly being detained is generally my understanding, right? We have to ask, why did the Saudi government go to such lengths for Ziad? Because we know accused U.S. citizens overseas don't necessarily get the same level of assistance. I've never heard of like a wire transfer of bail, no questions asked, a private jet. You know, this, I guess it does happen. And like, if you look at like some of the more high profile cases, but I don't know. What do you think, Jack? Yeah. I mean, it does seem very extravagant. Seems like the red carpet treatment. 
Yeah, it's very weird. Yeah, very five stars. And so. it's also murder suspect. You know, it's not like a vape pen like in Brittany Griner's situation yeah. where it's like a vape pen. That's not a, that's a nonviolent offense. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just a little different. Yeah, it's a little bit weird. There were a ton of rumors about how Ziad was able to leave the country and return back to Saudi Arabia. And understandably, all of the people of Warrensburg were fucking pissed. From what I understood, his dad was actually a pilot for the government. And that's the reason why they had such a thumb on this particular case and the situation. And that's the reason why he was able to have the pull within the government to be able to get out like he did. So one theory floating around at the time related to a visit to Warrensburg by then-President Obama. And this visit was just nine days before Ziad was released. We don't know the details. This is just what we've heard and what our Googling and research has provided. But we're going to let Deirdre explain. Basically, we learned that he was out of jail and that almost immediately he was picked up on a private plane and he was flown home. And he was gone. And we knew at that time that justice would never be served for that portion of this murder. But at the same time the plane came here, that I guess us commoners that kind of really, perception made us feel this way. One of the reasons that the money man was able to get out of jail and to be able to have bonds and to be able to leave on his little plane was because Obama came to UCM to give some type of speech and that this government and the United States are friendly So there's nothing that we could find indicating that Obama's visit to Warrensburg was anything aside from purely coincidental or that he even knew himself what was going on behind the scenes. But a lot of people, including Deidre, formed the view that there was something more to the visit on a broader scale due to how small that Warrensburg is. And when you see this red carbon treatment, as we referred to it, being dished out in such a fashion to an accused criminal resulting in them essentially getting away with murder or evading even going through the process of seeing if he is guilty, it's hard to ignore the possibility that something else is in fact going on behind the scenes that may be influencing decision-making on a broader scale. And I'm no conspiracy theorist, but I mean, Saudi Arabia's got a lot of oil, you know? So Mm. keeping them happy may be our government's priority. And that could be something we're just not privy to as your average citizens, right? Right. And what happened in Ziad's case isn't really uncommon. So it turns out that the Saudi government paying bond for its accused citizens in the U.S. and facilitating their hasty departure back to Saudi Arabia, while really brazen, appears to be pretty standard. Right. Because according to a report by The Washington Post and an ongoing deep dive investigation by The Oregonian, since around 2008, the Saudi government has helped more than two dozen citizens in 17 cases especially students accused of violent crimes in the U.S. And the charges range from manslaughter to rape and possession of child pornography. And the government has helped them flee from eight states and also Canada. And we know that it sounds really unbelievable, but Saudi diplomats and intelligence officials via a network of defense lawyers based right here in the U.S. help citizens abscond before going to trial or even after having charges dropped, all for a fee, of course. And beyond that, there is a complete lack of transparency around this aspect of our national security. The quick extraction of Saudi citizens is something its government has always strongly denied until as recently as the last couple of years, despite the FBI itself openly admitting that this occurs. 
And to make it worse, the U.S. has no extradition treaty with Saudi Arabia, so these favors are not returned. And numerous U.S. administrations have been criticized for their failure to call the Saudi government to account over extractions. Some have accused the U.S. government of actively prioritizing protecting diplomatic relations with allies like Saudi Arabia, especially in the fight against terrorism, over upholding the integrity of U.S. judicial process. What makes it all all the more bizarre and the outcome in Blaine's case look even more questionable and heartbreaking is how strongly both judges on this case fought the law to have Ziad kept in jail for as long as possible. So they wanted to do the right and just thing. The apparent smoke and mirrors in Ziad's sudden departure is exactly the sort of thing which leads to public disillusionment when it comes to what extent the U.S. immigration system facilitates these sorts of suspiciously strategic diplomatic maneuvers. The whole thing is likely far more complex than we can possibly speculate on or cover in the limited scope of our little true crime podcast, right? This is a CIA matter. This is a national security matter. This is the best we can do in explaining this in layman's terms, right? And with the limited information we have. I mean, this is top secret shit. So who knows what the truth is in terms of U.S.-Saudi international relations, especially in the economic and geopolitical context of what's recently been occurring with oil prices and other relations not limited to Saudi Arabia's support of Russia. No doubt, it's a prickly and delicate matter. And it's not known how many other countries, if any, are also assisting foreign citizens escape legal consequences in the U.S., so Saudi Arabia may very well be just one example. And obviously, most people from other countries who come here on student visas are law-abiding citizens. They come here for the right reasons, for their education. And there are thousands of law-abiding international students studying in the U.S. at any one time who are all good people and do the right thing. Right. So that was our whole thank you for coming to our TED Talk and giving you the background on why this may be occurring and what we know and don't know about these matters. But for now, we're going to get back to our story. We're going to get back to Blaine. So in May of 2014, 28-year-old Reggie was found guilty on both charges he was facing, and he was ultimately prosecuted and sentenced to life in prison for his role in the murder of Blaine Whitworth. And in court, he claimed that Ziad and his associates framed him for Blaine's murder, and that his original confession was false, done only in order to protect his family. Reggie went on to appeal his convictions, which are upheld by the Missouri Court of Appeals. It did go to trial. I remember it being just absolutely nail-biting, just very, you know, because you never know. You have that one rogue juror that believes that there's a little bit of doubt, and guess what? They walk free. I'm not sure if the defense was just pointing to an empty chair of, it wasn't him. You have nothing that really ties to it, except for he told his girlfriend that he did it. I guess she could have made it up, but, you know, the jury didn't believe so. Really, there wasn't a whole lot to present, so it wasn't a lot of back and forth. I remember just being very thankful for the opportunity to at least prosecute the trigger man and that we at least had him to answer to Blaine's murder. But it's painful for all involved that Ziad remains free and will likely never be held accountable. His actions show he's essentially good with Reggie being the scapegoat, which is pathetic and unjust, although Reggie deserves to be in jail if he was in fact the trigger man, right? And it appears he was. This reality is a torturous truth for those who loved Blaine. They have a difficult time accepting that somebody who facilitated this murder could just 
go free and go on living their lives as if this never had occurred. And what's even worse is that as of now, Ziad is free to return to the United States anytime he wants. Obviously, we're frustrated that the money man, the person we believe that actually caused all of this to go into action, isn't behind bars, will never get justice. And we just have to kind of like basically set the fat. But the good news is there is somebody that is serving time that is going to, you know, basically lose the rest of their life, just like they took blames. I don't think that there's any way to press charges against the money man, the guy that's out of the country now. And I think at this point, the family very much has made peace with the justice that they did get and what they were able to get here locally. And they very much have moved on to basically keeping Blaine's memory alive and have so since the day he passed away. Since Blaine's murder, Deidre's family and the Whitworths have grown even closer in the aftermath of several more very personal losses. In September of 2014, just days after the second anniversary of Blaine's murder, Deidre tragically lost her brother to suicide. And though the Whitworths were still grappling with their own suffering, they found the strength to rally around Deirdre's family. Only they truly knew the trauma of losing someone they loved so young. Blaine and my brother were born 10 days apart in February, and their date of death were six days apart in September. A part of me will always wonder if losing Blaine wasn't part of the driving force of him also taking his life because he had a guilt that Blaine had asked him several times to come over and DJ at one of his bars and come over and hang out. And my brother never went. And I think my brother harbored a lot of guilt for that. And I think he also felt that he wished that he could have been there to protect him. My brother was like six, seven. He was an enormous man. And he was one of the protectors of Blaine their entire lives. My brother was always so much bigger than Blaine. And it's one of those things where I think my brother just felt like maybe if I had been there, what if I would have been the bouncer? What if I would have this? Or what if I would have that? Would I have been able to save him? And I think it just shows you that trickle-down effect of losing someone like that and how people can internalize it and can really just manifest it in a way that ends up destroying them at the end of the day. And when you think things couldn't possibly get any worse, in 2019, the day after Christmas, the unimaginable happened. Blaine's brother Tyler also died by suicide. I got a call from uh, my mom. I remember just like being beside myself thinking, how much more can one family take? It's just terrible. And you, you wonder, did it weigh on him that he couldn't handle it anymore? Like part of it was his family, but part of it was, I think, you know, just never getting past losing his brother to murder. I can't help but think that maybe part of Tyler's suicide was attached to the fact that, you know, he lost his brother in a horrible way, but part of him died too. And I think that sometimes it's difficult to understand, relate to that when someone dies, there's usually a piece of the people that knew that person who dies too. Honestly, the pain that this family has had to endure and continues to have to endure with these losses, it's something unimaginable. And my heart completely breaks for them. In less than eight years, they lost two of their four children under these tragic circumstances. And despite everything that had been thrown at them, Blaine's parents kept Molly's and Bodie's 2.0 running as long as they could out of their love for Blaine, because these bars really were his dream. I think they were in their 50s when Blaine passed away, and they actually were driving back to the bars and tried to keep them open and functional because they had staff. They had, you know, people that worked there, people that had 
whether it was local college kids that worked there or older persons that maybe had a family, they wanted to try to keep them going and keep that memory alive. And so they did that for a really long time. And then finally it just became just not feasible. And so I believe the bars were sold, whether they're open to now under different names, I can't say. Following Blaine's death, his family wanted to find purpose in their loss, in their suffering, in Blaine's life and memory, as well as honor their son's passing in a meaningful way, while also giving back to the local community. They established the Blaine Whitworth Go Big or Go Home Foundation, which supports young entrepreneurs and community projects through fundraising initiatives to better the lives of local young people. They hold community fundraising events every year, with their signature event now being the annual Go Big or Go Home Golf Tournament. Basically what they do is they raise money and they give those funds out to a plethora of things. I know one thing they try to do is sponsor people who want to be entrepreneurs themselves. They give funds locally to Garden City, which is where Blaine lived. His parents put new lights up at the ball field with some of the monies. They give scholarships for high school students at the Sherwood High School where Blaine went to school at. Again, they go back to UCM at the college and they are intertwined there with a lot of different things. The inspiring and tireless way that Blaine's family have gone on to honor his memory and preserve his legacy is something that few people can find the reserve for. For Deidre, it's a testament to the kind of person that Blaine was, the way that he touched everybody around him, and how exceptionally proud his family is of everything that he left behind. I would say it very much became more clear to me that you literally cannot take any day on this earth for granted. You know that saying of, People don't remember what you say, they don't remember what you do or what you bought them, but they'll always remember how you made them feel. That's exactly how I try to live my life now, because that's what Blaine did. Blaine made us all feel a very special way because of the person he was and this this bigger than life personality that he was for such a small amount of time, that that's how I wanted to live my life. Basically, you need to live in the moment. You need to make sure that the people that you love know that you love them and you care about them and make those people feel the way that you would want to feel and the way you would want to be treated. And that's just basically how I started to live my life. And especially after losing my brother, tenfold do I feel that. What's so tragic about this story is that for absolutely no good reason, Blaine's insatiable thirst for a full, already beautiful life and his limitless potential was cruelly cut short by two selfish cowards. Blaine's life was filled with so many incredible accomplishments and his family and friends continue working hard to keep his memory alive and find purpose in their suffering. Knowing that Ziad hasn't been and likely will never be brought to justice still haunts them, it still stings especially considering the covert and grossly unjust circumstances under which he fled the country. But this hasn't deterred the many people who love Blaine and feel his loss so profoundly, least of all his remarkable parents, who have lost two sons from continuing to give back to the community the way Blaine would if he were still here with us. you or anybody you know is struggling with thoughts of self-harm, there is help available through the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline by dialing 988. And a huge thank you to Deidre for being our first degree today. Thank you for sharing Blaine's story, but also your own. 
And if you're listening out there and you have a story to tell, please email us hello at the first degree podcast.com. You can follow us on Instagram, join us on Facebook, join our Patreon, and uh, we'll see you back in our feed tomorrow for a brand new episode of Killing Time. And remember, only you can prevent serial killers. And keep your friends close, but not that close. Shout out to Jared Monaco for scoring original music for The First Degree, producing by Keelan Cleveland, writing and research by Gemma Harris. Sources for this episode are Court Documents, The Blaine Whitworth Foundation, Emuel Skinner, The Columbia Missourian, The Kansas City Star, The Associated Press, The Washington Post, The LA Times, Oregon Live, Fox 4, ProRepublica, and KMZ Radio. And as always, our first degree guest is always our largest source. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes.